You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi, guys. I'm Jen Fisher. I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. And thanks. Every Sunday, amongst everything else that's going on around here, sorry, Angela, I don't want to mess up your words. Okay. I try to take 10 minutes to go downstairs to visit our children's ministry. We have a program we call Kid Stuff downstairs, where our kids gather each week not just to sing songs and build crafts, but to grow in the word and in community together. Uh, and sometimes I come away with a little nugget of wisdom from hearing what they're learning about. So a couple weeks ago, I found out they're learning about what it looks like to be a superhero for God. So what it means to, you know, they're looking at superheroes like Daniel in the lion's den, and I think David and Goliath is a perfect fit for that conversation as well, right? And then I was listening to that podcast that Jonathan just talked about, um, Ask Science Mike. We're all, you know, we're all raving over it right now because we've invited him to come out this fall, Science Mike himself, to talk to us about the intersection of science and faith. That's what his whole podcast is about. So people will write in and they'll ask questions um, and he'll help dissect them in the, through the lens of science and through faith. So there was a woman who wrote in and asked uh, about superheroes, because just as we teach our kids all about, you know, being a hero for God, we as grown-ups, we're still, we love superheroes. In fact, I looked up the top 20 highest grossing movies of all time, and 15 of the 20 of them are either superhero, like Marvel Comics, things like that, or they are just hero stories of some kind. So Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, we love this stuff, okay? And so this woman was asking, like, why is that? Is there some evolutionary reason behind why we um, like we wish that we had superpowers that we don't ordinar- ordinarily have? Or, you know, is there some like, theological leaning towards it? Like, do we want to be more like God through all of that? And so Science Mike told her that, yeah, you know, Superhero stories are a way for us to project certainty onto a chaotic world. So after 9-11, for example, you saw an uptick in superhero movies because that was something that we all needed at that time. But there is actually an evolutionary advantage to our ability to have these fantasies. You know, our ability to dream and imagine a world that doesn't exist, it's how we invent and innovate and how we advance as a species. So for example, we might not be able to breathe underwater, but we can build scuba gear. You know, we can't actually fly ourselves, but we can build airplanes or send a man to the moon even. Um, And yes, our ability to dream and fantasize has also meant that we create guns and atomic bombs. But I'm hoping that it also means we'll find a cure for cancer or send a man to Mars. I don't know. Um, But it's what sets us apart as a species um, that we can dream beyond our own human limits. And this is true for human beings across all cultures. If you look across cultures and history, you see that you know, each culture has their own hero story or superhero story. There's the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh. There's the story of Sinbad the sailor in 1001 Arabian Nights. There's the legend of King Arthur. And then probably one of the most influential hero narratives in Western culture, at least, is Homer's The Odyssey and the Iliad, which has set this hero narrative across literature that so many of our favorite stories follow, like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and so many others. And it's true for the Bible as well, because if you trace that hero narrative, you find it throughout the stories of the Bible, like Moses and the Exodus. Um, That fits that hero narrative of, of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey just as well. So, 
I think even more so than just a good hero story, though, we Americans, we love a great underdog story, right? I mean, when you hear the phrase, we got a real David and Goliath matchup tonight, you think of sports instantly. I think um, March Madness, probably one of the reasons why we love tuning into that is because there's a solid chance of seeing a great underdog win every March, right? It's why we love our Harry Potters, our Frodo Baggins. It's that rags to riches story is where, um, you know, it's the American dream. You can go from having nothing to conquering everything and, and going beyond your wildest dreams. We love that stuff. And so it's no surprise, you know, we're going back and we're looking at these stories um, in the series called Retold. It's why Suhan just read for us a children's book story instead of um, the actual Bible, because we're reminding ourselves of how we learned these stories when we were kids. A story like David and Goliath has become such a huge part of our popular culture. We hear that phrase get thrown around and we totally get what it means. Or do we? You know, maybe um, because we've been hearing it so much, we just sort of push those stories off as cliche. Like, oh, I don't know that Jonah was actually in a whale. And like, what, David beat Goliath with like a slingshot? Come on, really? How do these things actually still impact our faith? Have we act, do we take them seriously? Is there anything that they offer us as grown adults, right? Well, I started unpacking this story and I learned that there's actually some really good stuff happening in this story that maybe we're not fully aware of. Um, every once in a while, I get lucky and I get assigned a piece of text to preach on um, that someone else has already written a great book on and done a whole bunch of really awesome research I can't do. So <laughs> I got lucky with this one. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, you know that author, he's the best-selling author of those books, The Tipping Point and Blink. He wrote a book titled da, 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 David and Goliath, and uh, it's a social science and psychology book about underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants in our modern world. It's a really super interesting read through the lens of a Christ follower. And so he starts off by unpacking just exactly where this whole battle takes place, okay? It's in this valley in this ancient region of Palestine, in this uh, valley known as Shephelah, okay, and it's a series of ridges and valleys, and it's really beautiful. I actually have a picture of it, because as New Yorkers, you know, we can all appreciate a great piece of land when we see it. <laughs> it's got vineyards and hills and all these beautiful things. You can understand why people are fighting over this. But actually, it also separates the, um, the coast from the Mediterranean plain. So if you can gain control of this area of land, then you have access to the cities of Bethlehem, and Jerusalem and Hebron. Um, like, so this is actually like a really important piece of land. So many battles of the Crusades were fought here, but probably the most famous battle that we know of was David and Goliath. But to understand why they were even fighting, we need to kind of understand the history of the people of Israel at this time. So they were all living in these Judean highlands around Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the people of Israel were, and they were under their, the, king, the leadership of their first king, okay, of King Saul. Up until this point, they had been ruled by judges. And you can find the story of David and Goliath in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. Uh, but this story actually... To better understand it, we should probably know who Samuel is, since the book take, this story takes place in his book. Samuel, um, his mother, you might have heard of her, she was named Hannah. She prayed and prayed and prayed for God. She was this barren woman. She prayed to God asking for a child. And when Samuel was born, she named him Samuel because it means the Lord hears, and she committed his life to God. So Samuel would go on to be one of Israel's last judges, and then he became its first prophet, someone who God spoke directly through. And then he became a counselor to the first two kings of, the, of Israel, um, which were Saul and then David. 
So now fast forward to Saul. Saul's a grown-up, right? He's king, and uh, Samuel's all grown up, and he's serving as the prophet to Saul. And things are going all right. Um, but then Saul started to be disobedient to the Lord. He wasn't listening to God's word given to him through Samuel. Um, he was making his own decisions in battle. Things were not going well. So God decided he'd had enough of Saul. And so he sent Samuel out to go anoint a new king. Thus enters David, a shepherd boy. David is the youngest of eight sons of a man named Jesse, and he lives in Bethlehem. So Samuel goes to anoint a new king in the house of Jesse, just like God tells him to. And he gets there, and he sees Eliab, the oldest son, who's you know handsome, he's good-looking, he's the firstborn, he's just the guy that you just assume is the one that God's going to make king. That's what Samuel thought. That's what everyone would have thought. I think we would have too. But then in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it tells us, The Lord said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So instead, the Lord chooses David, the youngest son. He's the little shepherd guy. He's got that lowly profession of being a shepherd. He's out in the fields just singing songs and reading scripture and taking care of the sheep, okay? But God loves David. You'll later learn that he, um, he calls him a man after his own heart, right? David's a good guy. The Lord knows him well, and he knows the Lord well. And so from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, it says. But for the time being, Saul is still king, okay? And at this time, the Philistines, who were from Crete, they're um, a seafaring people. They're creeping along the coastland. They actually have a map of this area. Um, I love reading the Bible with a map because it um, better informs the logistics and the details of what's going on in these stories. It helps my imagination. It helps me empathize more. So you can tell from this map the areas where the Philistines um, had control, and then you can see where the people of Israel were. And so obviously you can see why they're battling in this particular valley of of Elah, because um, the Philistines' goal is to break up Saul's kingdom into two, okay? So the Philistines set up along the southern ridge of the valley, and Saul gathers all of his men and sets up camp along the northern ridge. These guys are their arch enemies, and the Philistines are really good warriors. They're like scary guys, okay? And there's a lot at stake here, so you have to understand that in medieval battle like this, if you lost, you, you know, if you lived, then you became a slave or subject of whoever conquered you. So everything at stake is at stake in this battle. But here they are, set up along these two ridges, and they're at a stalemate because whoever goes first has to descend down the ridge through the valley and then up the ridge of the enemy's side. So as you're trying to ascend up to defeat your enemy, they're just going to rain down their catapults and their arrows and all that. So it's basically like a suicide attempt. So that is the whole reason why Goliath is coming out each morning and shouting, come to me, somebody come take me on. Because he's their big, you know, massive, scary warrior dude who some Bibles say is six foot seven. Others Bibles say that he's nine foot nine inches. No matter what, he was a giant especially by medieval sizes, okay? And he's scary. The Israelites are terrified of him. He's, he's challenging them to a duel. He's saying, somebody come out here and battle me, single combat, hand-to-hand, let's do this, winner take all, okay? He comes out wearing this, like, bronze armor from head to toe. It probably weighs, like, 100 pounds, and he's got a sword and a javelin on his back and a spear with a point that's, like, 15 pounds alone, that spear could pierce through any kind of bronze armor that your enemy is wearing. And then he's got a little guy walking with him who's carrying a shield and helping him out and protecting him. So he is absolutely terrifying. And the Israelites are just like shaking in their boots. 
And then here comes little David, skipping along with his little, you know, bread basket or whatever, coming to talk to his <laughs> brothers. Um, I picture like Red Riding Hood in that. I don't know if that's fair. But um, so his dad sends him, go check on your brothers, because his brothers are out of the front lines with Saul. Give him something to eat. Find out how it's all going. Because everybody knows that for 40 days now, Goliath has been challenging someone to come out and take him on, and no one's doing it. David, being who he is, you know, he sees the situation, and he's, he just asks an innocent question. He's like, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I know. <laughs> and Eliab, David's oldest brother, remember him? He got passed over to be king. I think he probably thought he was going to be king too. Um, he, I can imagine, there's probably been some sibling rivalry between them since that day happened. It doesn't seem like they have a great relationship anymore, or if they ever did, because Eliab's reaction to David is like, what? don't ask questions. What are you doing here? You're wicked. You're conceited. You're just here to make fun of us. Get out of here. And David, you know, he's just asking questions. He's like, what did I do? But before he has a chance to go, Saul overhears that David is asking questions. And Saul is desperate. I mean, he's offering his armies money and, you know, you can marry my daughter. Like somebody just had the guts to go out and take this guy on and nobody's willing to do it. He hears that David's talking and asking questions, so he calls him over. And David says, let no one lose heart. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul's like, you're just a young guy. You can't do this. Like, are you kidding me? Goliath has been fighting. He's been the strong warrior since before he was your age. Like, you, you can't do this. But David says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Isn't that in such incredible like, faith? He has such trust. He's like, no, God's had my back before. He's going to have my back again. I can do this. And Saul has no better choice. You know, so he goes, all right, well, you know, you're going out to do hand-to-hand combat, so let's dress you up. Let's put you in, in all the gear that Goliath has. But David, putting it all on, is like, I can't, I've never worn this before. I can't wear all this. I, I, no, I'm going to go with my instincts. I'm going to do what I know is best. So he goes and picks out five, you know, shiny stones. But let's clarify one thing about those stones. Um, the mineral that is in this valley is like five times denser than an average rock. So right off the bat, he's, he's picking like smart rocks, okay? He knows what he's going to use as his weapon, okay? So keep that in mind. And then I think this is where the story starts to get fun, okay? Because in my mind, I've always pictured this Dennis the Menace type character. When you search the internet for like kids' activities on David and Goliath, you find like little slingshot, little boy slingshot, right? With a pebble that he threw. So I always kind of thought this was more miracle than anything else. That's how David won. But that's not actually the situation at all. Um, I think the first thing that we should know about David in this situation is that, well, ancient armies are made up of three different kinds of warriors. So there's the cavalry, which are the guys on horseback or in chariots. And then there's the infantry, which are the guys all clad in armor. That's what Goliath was, right? He's infantry. And then there's the artillery, the projectile warriors. They're the guys with the bows and arrows and the slings. Okay, raise your hand. Have you ever heard of a sling? Have you guys heard of these slingers? Raise your hand and tell me if you have. Okay, not that many of you. Good. I feel a little less stupid now. Great. So, so look it up on YouTube. Look up what a medieval sling is. There's these videos. They weren't good enough quality for me to show you guys, but... It's pretty interesting. That children's book did a great 
job of showing you what it is, actually. There's that long pouch, right? And then those two long leather straps. That's what David had as he was going up against Goliath. Um, so you put your heavy, you know, little rock or whatever it is into that pouch, and then you start swinging it, and you build up momentum, and you let one of the straps fly, and that rock goes flying so hard that uh, modern-day ballistics experts, they think that it has the stopping force, the same stopping force as like a point forty-five millimeter gun would today, okay? So this is intense, this weapon. Um, and then I would think, like, how can there be any accuracy in doing that? It doesn't, I, I don't get it at all. But according to the book of Judges, slingers were able to be accurate within a hair's breadth. They could aim at a target 200 yards away and, and nail it. So it's entirely possible that David could throw that rock and hit Goliath right in the forehead, right in the only place where he didn't have armor on, right? So that's what's going on with David. He's no little slingshot boy. When it says that he killed a lion and a bear, like I think of that YouTube video, the guy, the Australian surfer who punched that shark. Did you guys see that this week? Yeah. I thought of David, right? <laughs> so, so, so that's David in this situation. He's walking out there with this, you know, shepherd staff and these deadly little weapons in his hand that everyone's like, oh, David, cute. Okay, but then there's Goliath. Here's what you should know about him. In the rules of war, he was expecting to go up against another infantryman. He was expecting another big dude to come out clad in armor and they were going to like sword fight or something. That's what he was expecting. Okay, and some um, scientists or doctors today think that maybe there's a chance that Goliath suffered from a disease called acromegaly. Acromegaly. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But it's basically a, a giant disease. It's a, a tumor that pushes on your pituitary gland and causes you to grow extra tall, um, but it also can give you vision problems, like you can um, see double, or you could have really, 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 really bad vision. So some uh, scholars think that there may be some clues in the story that Goliath suffered from this disease, because not only of his size, but because he said things like, what am I, a dog, that you would come at me with sticks? And he says that to David, because David's walking out with his little shepherd staff, right? And they're thinking, He's calling it sticks because maybe he thinks that David has two of them because he's seen double. I don't know. He's saying, come and fight me because he needs the warrior to come to him because he can't really see unless the person is standing right in front of him ready to do battle as another infantryman. And then they think because he's got that guy carrying the shield that um, he needed someone to help him because his vision's not good enough to battle on his own. I don't know. These are all really interesting theories, I think. But there's definitely some basis to believe that maybe... Goliath didn't have as much advantage as we all just assume he did, and maybe David wasn't just such an underdog as we all thought he was. So here comes David, right? He's, he's telling, um, he yells out to Goliath, like, this is the day that the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And in that second, I think Goliath starts to realize what's about to happen because in just a matter of like two seconds, David's able to run out, throw his sling, and nail Goliath in the forehead. And then the part that we often leave out in the children's story is that then David goes and cuts off his head and, you know, and the Philistine army flees and the Israelites go running after him. So, so, is this the underdog story that we originally thought it was? I don't know. I don't know that I would necessarily call David an underdog. He was a deadly warrior in his own right. I think everyone on that battlefield looked at that situation and realized David's going to go as artillery. Like, pff, Goliath doesn't stand a chance. Artillery beats infantry every time. So maybe there's something else going on. 
I think maybe that this is a story a little bit more about perspective. Maybe there's a lesson in here for us about how we view our obstacles and our enemies and our world. And not just, oh, who are the giants in your world that you need to conquer? It's not just that. You know, David knew nothing about the rules of battle. He came in and looked at this situation with his own set of values, his own set of rules. And they were very close to the rules and values of the kingdom of God. This is a man after God's own heart, remember? He looked at the world with a whole different vision. Um, he looked at it through the lens of faith, through the lens of, of the kingdom of God. And so remember what uh, God told Samuel earlier, don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And at the time he was talking about Eliab, but he could have just as easily been talking about Goliath, saying don't be intimidated by his size and height. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David, a man after God's own heart. And then who are we going to see, you know, um, years later down the line, coming from the family of David, the descendant of David, Jesus, another man who's showing us God's heart and everything that he does. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's showing us um, what it looks like to have strong character, to be a man or a woman of God. And clearly, Jesus does not play by the same rules either. That's, his whole point is to come in and fulfill the law, to teach us a new way of living, this incredible radical grace and love that he comes to show. He's totally asking us to shift our perspective, to shift away from the way that the world sees things, valuing the Goliaths and, and understanding what it looks like to value the Davids. What does Jesus tell his disciples? He tells them, you want to be first? Then make yourself last. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? Then be a servant to all. Serve everyone. Love everyone. Love your enemies. Change the rules. Change the way you do things. He teaches us what character looks like by modeling it for us. If someone's hungry, <clears throat> feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're a stranger, take them in. If they're a prisoner, visit him. These are the things that Jesus is teaching us through his gospels, through his parables, throughout the stories um, of his ministry. And David knew these verses well because David's reading the same Old Testament passages that Jesus was reading. Like in the prophet Isaiah, his words, David's reading um, about what it looks like to loose the chains of, of injustice and, and to free the oppressed and to give food to those who are hungry and to provide shelter for the poor wanderer. He knows what it looks like to have character in the kingdom of God. He knows what it looks like to make your righteousness shine before God, okay? So we're learning a little bit about what it looks like to come at a situation with a different perspective, to look through the same lens of faith that maybe David is trying to teach us through this. And yeah, maybe David is a foreshadowing of who Jesus is going to be and what Jesus is going to do for us. But um, when we brush off these little stories as just you know, another set of tall tales or cute little children's stories, we're missing out on an opportunity to grow and learn as adults. There's this book called How to Read the Bible as Literature by a man named Leland Riken, and he talks about how in any hero or heroine story, the storyteller is um, projecting the culture and, and morals of you know, wherever that character is coming from. So when we, put, when we read a story like this, we put ourselves into David's shoes, and we ask questions about our own morality and our own values, and um, we can grow in empathy. So when we brush off these stories as being, you know, kind of clumping them all together as one cute little lesson, we're missing out because David's story is actually subtle. It's complex to interpret. There's a lot more going on here, a lot more that we can get from the text if we give it a chance and really unpack it. We have to use our own skills of interpretation to understand the mystery in it all. I think that's the difference between a hero story in the Bible and maybe somewhere else. That the Bible is always asking us to interpret the values of the kingdom of God. So here we have the physical world, right? 
It's telling us that the Goliaths always win. The big dudes, the pretty people, the millionaires, the shiny houses, you know, you're about your outward appearance and what you have and what your resume says. That's what the physical world tells us, right? But the spiritual world, the one that we're all striving to be a part of because we're all here, we're all seeking to know the heart of God better, it's calling us to look towards the poor and the oppressed. It's telling us that the humble and the meek are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. It's telling us that the Davids are the ones that we should look out for. These people with great character who know how to use their skills, the skills and experiences that God gave them to serve the Lord's people. I mean, think about how, how, much, how great it would be if we could actually start to have that perspective of understanding that those challenges, those dark nights of the soul that we go through, that they're all shaping us for skills and opportunities in the future where God might need to use us for his people or for his story. How does reading a story like this teach us a little bit more about how to be spiritual people in our physical world? Because the truth is, we all have a little bit of David and a little bit of Goliath inside each of us. We all have to wrestle with what it feels like to be cool or to be just. Do you side with what's popular or do you side with what's right? How do you discern the difference um, between the two inside of yourself? I mean, do you seek to live a life of humility before God? These are the questions I'm hoping that we'll ask as we start to shift our perspective and look at our world, understanding that Maybe what we assume to be happening is not always what's happening. Maybe the things that we think are advantages are actually disadvantages. Maybe the things that we think are are challenges and trials are actually blessings in disguise. Maybe we can start to shift the way that we look at our personal situations, the way we look at our city, so that we might start to see how the heart of God is, is calling us. So this week, I'm hoping that we can go out and start to ask ourselves those questions. Do I value what God values? When I look at my workplace, my home, my bank account, does it reflect the values of the kingdom of God? Do I line up with what God loves? Do I seek to loose the chains of the oppressed and to feed the hungry and clothe the poor? Do I live a life that lifts up the underdogs and the misfits and the outcasts? Do I lead a life that points people toward the presence of Jesus? And if you don't know how to begin those questions, if you don't know how to wrestle with those things, then just join us because every week we live out this vision to, every day we are living out this vision to see lives and neighborhoods in our city renewed through Jesus and we do it through the lens of four values here as a community. Humility, diversity, community, and generosity. So if you're struggling to figure out what your personal values are, start to ask yourself that. Like, do I live a life that values diversity? Do I, I value generosity in the way I spend my money? Should I follow the rules in my workplace that are full of greed and gossip and manipulation? Or do I, do I have the courage to follow the, God's rules instead, to, to shift the way I look at a situation and to embrace what God's calling me to? Should I give up or, or should I strike back? Should I forgive or should I persevere or should I keep going? Should I side with what's controversial at work or should I just keep my mouth closed? How do you process those articles that come through your newsfeed that you're reading on Facebook and Twitter? Do you process, do you take the time to even sort through and listen and learn about you know, the conversations that are happening amongst the LGBTQ community and the American church? Do you know anything about what's happened, um, how hard those people have been fighting to, to get their minimum wage uh, raised this past week for fast food workers? Like, do you know what's happening for the poor and the oppressed here in our city? Do you have an opinion on poverty and on gentrification and on rising rent prices in your neighborhood? 
Are you even aware of what's going on in your neighborhood? How do your values and views shape your perspective of this world? How do your values and views line up with God? How do they help you see where the Davids and the Goliaths sit in your world? God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Shall we pray? Father God, as you mature us as a community, as you mature us as individuals, just pray that you would help us to lean a little further into your values, Lord. Pray that you would open our perspective, that you would open our eyes to seeing the oppressed, to seeing the unjust, to seeing the um, people who deserve to have our, our, our love and our attention because they are the people that you love, Lord. Um, help us to see the infinite worth of every individual we cross this week and help us to, to start to see our own infinite worth, um, that we might start to look a little more like David, a little more like you, Lord. Um, help us to just move one step closer to having the perspective of, of being your people here in this city. It's in your name we pray. Amen.